This is Swordplay. Alex, an exorcist, has recently come out and said that Celine Dion's new gender-neutral clothing line is demonic. No way, Nick. Take a look at these super stylish black and gray designs. I mean, we got black glitter, we got pentagrams, skulls, the pagan sun cross, the all-is-one anti-gender, anti-Christian advertising. Obviously, Nick, these are neutral in their meaning. Hey, by the way, have you done your morning earth worship yet? I mean, uh, your your morning yoga, I, I mean stretching. Have you stretched uh, today, Nick? No, I can't say that I have. Okay. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. On this episode of Swordplay, we dig back into the Apocrypha with the book of Tobit. Tobit. Very good. And uh, the book of Tobit, as you said, Nick, is a part of the Apocrypha. It's 14 chapters long, and it tells the story of a man named Tobit. Also, really more about his son, Tobias, but uh, we'll get into the details later. Uh, if you want to follow along, um, you're going to have to do one of two things. Either grab, if you have one, a Catholic Bible. Uh, that would be the New Jerusalem Bible, um, the New American Bible. That's right. Uh, not to be confused with the New American Standard Bible. Right. Um, or you can go online and Google the Book of Tobit. There's several uh, texts online that you can track down. The Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version are both good ones, too. You can find those as well. Yeah. So because we say that because you're not going to find the book of Tobit in just uh, your average Protestant Bible. We don't have the apocryphal books in our Bibles. I think there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about why isn't Tobit in our Bibles in a little bit. But, um, yeah, if you want to follow along, you got to do one of those things. So, All right. And Let's, also, for our Catholic friends, uh, we know that these books are also called Deuterocanonical. That's Deuterocanonical. Right. So. That's right. Um, I guess we'll just dig right into this, and we'll actually talk about the manuscripts themselves, Alex. Um, when it comes to the book of Tobit, what manuscripts are we working with? Well, okay, scholars, uh, put on your seat belts. Let's uh, strap our learning hats on. We're going to go for a little ride. Are you ready? Manuscript evidence for the Book of Tobit. So the oldest manuscripts that we have, we have five copies that are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they're labeled 4Q, 196 through 200. Uh, four of those are written in Aramaic. One of them is written in Hebrew, and these are dating to the first century B.C. So these are extremely important manuscripts. One of the things that they do for us is they show us that the Book of Tobit was not... Uh, pieced together over time, but it was transmitted as a whole, as a whole writing. So it has a strong textual tradition, uh, wildly popular throughout uh, different languages and cultures as the text made its way through history. There are three textual traditions, though, within the Greek manuscripts. So when I say Greek manuscripts, we're talking about the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. So the original textual tradition can be found in Codex Sinaiticus. 
Now, if you've taken apologetics or historical Christian evidences, you may recognize that name. We talk about Codex Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and Alexandrinus and uh, Bizet and Ephraimi. And, and we talk about these early, reliable codexes that contain manuscripts of the New Testament. And so that's very important for us as Christians today. But those codexes don't just contain New Testament documents. They contain Old Testament documents as well. So Codex Sinaiticus has the Septuagint within its list of codexes, uh, within its manuscripts. So that's the first textual tradition. You can see it's, the, it's thought to be the original textual tradition. It's in Codex Sinaiticus. But then there was this uh, second textual tradition that branched off at some point, and it's much shorter. It's a shorter version of Tobit. It's more concise. It has um, less Hebraisms in it. And that shorter textual tradition can be found in Codex Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, and Venetus. So, if you're reading the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV is going to follow the Sinaiticus uh, version of Tobit, which is the original textual tradition. It's longer, has more Hebraisms in it. Now, if you're reading the, the Revised Standard Version, though, the RSV... It follows that shorter second textual tradition that uses Vaticanus and Alexandrinus. There is a third textual tradition, just as a side note. It's a part of uh, the Syriac manuscripts, and it also is, is like the second tradition. It's shorter. So the original Greek tradition found in Sinaiticus, it does lack a few spots. It lacks chapter 4, verses 7 through 19, and chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. It's usually supplemented by translators using other Greek or Old Latin texts. And uh, also, Jerome, the guy who wrote the Latin Vulgate, he used the uh, second textual Greek tradition to supplement his old Latin copy of Tobit that he was working with. And it says that he translated, he says this himself, he translated Tobit in one day, which is a lot of work for one day. It's 14 chapters. Yeah, no doubt. And he used the hired hand of a bilingual Jew. So some think that Jerome, in his version of Tobit in the Vulgate, actually added a little bit to the story when it says uh, that Tobias and Sarah get married. Well, the Vulgate story says that they abstained from intercourse for three days after their wedding in order to pray. And that practice later became promoted in the Roman catholic church as a sign of uh great piety so that was probably inserted by jerome or uh, some someone around that time so that's the manuscript evidence that we're working with yeah uh, if you're if you're taking a nap right now go ahead and wake back up <coughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we're moving on to the next idea within manuscripts um and that is the date of tobit Nick, what do you think about the book of Tobit? When was it written? Well, uh, I actually have Bruce Metzger's introduction to the Apocrypha. Uh, and in his book, he, talk, he has a chapter on Tobit. He talks about how it was probably composed in the 2nd century B.C. He puts the dates 190 to 170 uh, B.C. So <clears throat> almost 200 years before Jesus shows up. Okay, that's, that's when this book could have been written, probably was written. There is an argument to be made 
for either a Tobit or a Tobias authorship. Uh, in, in other words, the characters in the book actually write it, and that's that comes from the text itself. In uh, Tobit 12, verse 20, the angel, Raphael, we'll talk about him more in a bit, he charges them to write down all these things that happened to you. So uh, that's the argument for authorship of the characters themselves. What do you think, Alex? And, of course, if it was uh, Tobias or Tobiah, as it's written in some translations, there would have to be somebody who came along later on after Tobias's death to record Tobias's death. Right. Uh, just like we have with the books of Moses, somebody came along and wrote about Moses' death after Moses died in his writings. Um, so you're using Metzger's introduction to the Apocrypha. I hear that's pretty good. Um, I'm using a different book by David De Silva, and it's called Introduction to the Apocrypha. It's also very good. You can find either one of these on Amazon.com if our audience is interested in that. So David De Silva, in his Introduction to the Apocrypha, says that the Book of Tobit definitely has to be written before 100 B.C. because we have manuscripts from 100 B.C. Those are right. early Qumran manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, when you read the Book of Tobit, you don't have any echoes or flavoring of the Maccabean Revolt. No uh, element of danger from Hellenization, although there's always the, you know, concern for keeping your Israelite culture intact while in exile. But you don't have any future prophet uh, prophecy given by Tobit uh, at the end, by his, at his deathbed, you know, prophecy that points towards a Maccabean revolt or a Hellenization of the uh, Jewish culture. So. That concern, since it developed really in the 100s, then that pushes this book back at least to the 200s. So we're talking 3rd century BC. And if it really was written by Tobit or Tobias, then or somebody contemporary, you know, within that storyline, then the writing would take place around 600 BC because it talks about the destruction of Nineveh, and Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. So that's at the end of the story. So we're looking... If it is that far back and original to the contemporary characters of that story, it's we're looking seventh century BC, right? So uh, yeah. So let's talk about a little more about the. There's some differences between the Septuagint. You were kind of alluded to this earlier. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Bible, and the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, can you talk about some of those differences uh, in those two texts? Absolutely, Nick. The differences underlying these texts have to do with the um, Greek that they're going off of. So I read the both the New Revised Standard Version and the uh, Septuagint from the Lexham English Septuagint. So that's called the LES. It's a part of the Logos Bible software. So the NRSV uses the original Greek textual tradition, which is the longer version of the story found in Codex Sinaiticus. The Septuagint I read from, from the Lexham English Septuagint, uses Vaticanus as its underlying text, which is the shorter uh, second textual tradition. So the first major difference, which leads to all the differences really that we're looking at, is that we're going off of two different textual traditions, one from Sinaiticus, and then the shorter one from Vaticanus. So that that's the at the heart of it right there. And, and so you end up with a number of 
differences in, in uh, several of the verses in the text, right? Yes. In fact, um, the ones that I noted as being most significant for our audience, and we'll put this in the in the episode notes, but the ones that I thought were most significant were chapter 3, verse 16, chapter 5, verse 10, uh, chapter 11, verse 4, chapter 12, verse 8, and 14, chapter 13, verse 2 and 12, chapter 14, verse 4, 6 through 8, and 10. So it's really especially those last few chapters where you see well, a lot l- of differences. L- and let me just point out... Um one of those that you mentioned, 14 verse 4, the, the yep. difference there has to do with uh, which prophet uh, does uh, Tobit reference. Uh, in other words, was it Jonah's preaching and prophesying or Nahum's, which alerted Tobit to call his family to flee from Nineveh? Right. So in the shorter textual tradition, you it says Jonah, but in the original longer textual tradition, it says Nahum. Right. And so I'm going to go with Nahum here. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls can't help us because they're too damaged in this verse. So we don't have an actual name in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But uh, I'm going to go with Nahum because Sinaiticus says Nahum. That's what the NRSV uses is Sinaiticus. That is the original longer tradition. It's also the, the correct timing of everything. Um, it's historically correct. So Vaticanus, the second tradition, uh, it makes a mistake in either copying the names over or they, you know, there was some copyist who was working with something that didn't have a name, and he inserted it himself, thinking that it was Jonah, that that was the right answer, but it wasn't. And so there's obviously a mistake that's been made there in the uh, shorter textual tradition. That's my take. So it, it's Nahum, and I think the, the text from Sinaiticus is solid and accurate when it says Nahum. Well, I guess we'll move on now to the narrative itself, the story uh-huh. itself. yes. This is an exciting story. Nick, who's Tobit? So Tobit is a devout, wealthy Israelite. He lives in the 8th century B.C., 8th century before Christ came. He lives as an exile with his fellow countrymen in Nineveh, uh, and that follows the conquest, um, the Assyrian conquest of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C., what is interesting is that while the book bears his name, and you kind of referenced this earlier, the, the story is it actually focuses on his son, uh, who's right. really, he's kind of the main character. His name is uh, Tobiah, and he's sent by his father to take care of family business while Tobit and his wife remain at home. And I think there's a, a reason for that. We'll talk about when we get to the summary of these chapters. Tobit stays home, and I guess I'll... Uh, give you a spoiler alert here. He stays home because uh, in chapter 2, he sleeps out in the courtyard of his house and some sparrows, uh, some sparrow droppings end up falling in his eyes and Ooh. it causes him to go blind. Bad luck. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a bit about Tobit there. <clears throat> okay, well, maybe we should give a quick rundown of the characters found within the story of Tobit. And this Sounds like a lightning round to me. Lightning round. This will be our lightning round. So let me get out my timer here, Nick. And we will blast through these questions. So, first question starting for you, Nick. On your marks, get set, and go. Who are the main characters in this story overall? Uh, so we have 
Tobit and Hannah, Tobias, Raphael, Raguel, and Edna, Sarah, Asmodeus, and Gabael. Okay, that was quick. Let's run through these real quick. Tobit and Hannah. We talked about Tobit. Hannah, or Anna, is his wife. Tobias, or Tobiah, that is Anna and Tobit's dutiful son. His name actually means Yahweh is good. Raphael, an interesting guy, he's an angel sent by God to heal Tobit, help Sarah, drive away the demon Asmodeus. Let's go ahead and jump down to Asmodeus since I mentioned him. He's a demon that is plaguing Sarah. Raguel and Edna, those are Sarah's parents. They're actually relatives of Tobit. Gabael, he is a friend of Tobit in media. He helped keep some of Tobit's silver safe when Tobit was doing business for the Assyrian king. And then there's Raguel and Edna. She is, uh, excuse me, Sarah. She is a seven-time widow plagued by this demon who actually kills her husband every time she gets married on the wedding night. And that's the lightning round. (laughs) One minute, 12 seconds. Not too shabby. Not too shabby. Well... As we look into this book, it is quite a long book, but we're going to summarize it for you. So if you haven't read it, um, here's the the breakdown. We're going to give you the Cliff's Notes, the Spark Notes here. So we're going to do three chapters at a time. And Nick, why don't you kick us off? Give us a summary of chapters one through three. So the book starts with a focus on Tobit. He's this very devout religious man. He's living in Nineveh during the Assyrian captivity. He's so devout, he's the kind of guy who only eats kosher foods. He makes pilgrimages to Jerusalem. He gives a triple tithe. He also is careful in his observance of burying the dead. In fact, there's an extended discussion on on him doing that for his compatriots. But uh, he, he helps... The monarchy, but with the change in the monarchy comes a change in Tobit's winds of fortune. His enterprise is threatened because the way to media becomes dangerous under the new king. And then the new king finds out that Tobiah has been killing his, or excuse me, has been burying his victims. And so Tobit has to flee for his life, and his stuff is confiscated by the government. Nevertheless, He continues his benevolence works among the people, especially after he is permitted to come back when a new king comes to power. Well, during Pentecost, Tobit hears that one of his countrymen has been strangled in the market. He gets up from his meal, straightway goes and buries the man. He is rendered ritually unclean because of that, and so that's why he ends up sleeping outside in his court, courtyard there, But as he's sleeping, these sparrows, these birds, they actually defecate into his sleeping eyes. This causes him to become blind. He can't work. Hannah, she goes to support them doing, quote, women's work. And that's weaving cloth. One day, she gets a bonus. It's a goat. Tobit, he becomes angry. You got to take it back. Return it. It might be stolen. Hannah, she rebukes Tobit very sharply. Your character is coming out. Uh, as he begins to be frustrated with her. Well, he's grief-stricken right down to his soul. He laments to God. He prays that he might die. Meanwhile, while Tobit is praying to die, in media, Sarah is undergoing her own trials. She's had seven marriages that have resulted in seven dead husbands due to this demon named Asmodeus. But the townsfolk, they don't know that she's plagued by this demon. She, they think she's a, a black widow who kills 
her husband every time. She, she's accused of murdering her husbands. So at the very same time that Tobit is praying for death, Sarah too is praying for death, but their prayers go up before God, and he answers by sending his angel Raphael to bring about the marriage of Tobit's son, Tobiah, and Sarah, and also to change the fortunes of Tobit himself. Um, so you already have, right here at the beginning, the opening three chapters, chapters one through three, you already have the makings of a romance. Uh, and there's not a lot of suspense here because, spoiler alert, they tell you where they're going with this. <clears throat> right. And the, I mean, the characters of Tobit and Sarah, you know, they don't know each other. They're separated by space. Um, they get to a very, very dark place. Like you said, Nick, they were praying that God would kill them. But Sarah, she was going to kill herself. And she couldn't go through with it because she didn't want to bring more shame upon her father's household. And so instead of killing herself, she asked for either God to kill her or for God to take away her shame and her reproach. It's her own maidservant that uh, really lashes out at her, and it's probably because it says that Sarah was, um, one text says Sarah was beating her, one text says Sarah was sharply rebuking her, and the slave lashes out and says, why don't you just go die with all your husbands and never have children? <laughs> I mean, yeah. pretty, pretty harsh stuff. It's interesting how both Sarah and... Tobit are seen as lashing out out of their frustration and misfortune. Tobit with his wife, Anna, Sarah with her maidservant. And to me, these characters, they're very human. They're very relatable. People can understand how you just say stuff that you regret. You do stuff that you regret out of frustration and anger and misfortune. And even wanting to die. And does God rebuke them for their lack of faith? No, God sends them an angel. Yeah, that I mean that's the emphasis. You hit the nail on the head. These are just ordinary people. <laughs> just ordinary people living their ordinary lives and then uh, bad luck, misfortune, hard times, however you want to say that just comes upon them and it's there's some tragedy here. That's right. <clears throat> well, Nick, let's do a summary of chapters four through six. Why don't you take that for us? All right, let's do it. Now Tobit he's convinced he's gonna die. But before he dies, he remembers he's left some money with Gabael over in Media. And so he instructs his son, Tobiah, uh, in a number of things. Do right by your countrymen. Don't marry outside the tribe. Follow the Torah. Be generous. Um, and other pious reminders like that. After he does that, he commissions Tobiah, hey, go to Media to... Uh, rages, I guess that's how you pronounce it. Ra it, it looks like rages in English, but Rock anyway. Is. Sure. Um, go there, retrieve money that he's left with uh, Gabael. So Tobiah, the obedient son, he goes to fulfill his father's wishes. But first he needs a traveling companion. No sooner does he step outside the door, he runs into Raphael, the angel. But Raphael has disguised himself. Uh, he's disguised himself as one of their relatives named Azariah. That's and they right. agree on they agree on wages, and then they head toward rages in uh, media. Um, and after they leave, uh, Sarah worries about Tobit making this journey. Moms, am I right? And uh, <laughs> but Tobit assures her a good angel will go with him. Ooh, hmm. He Iron doesn't, irony. 
I know. He doesn't even know what he's saying. But anyway, so chapter 6 picks up. Tobiah, Raphael, who's disguised himself as Azariah, and the family dog start on the trek. Uh, they stop by the Tigris River. Uh, suddenly, Jonah's big fish, or at least one that's eerily similar to the large that large fish, jumps out of the water, intent on devouring Tobiah. But Tobiah instead hauls the fish ashore. Raphael instructs him, take the gall, the heart, and the liver, because those are, quote, useful as medicine. Like us, Tobiah wants to know how. And so Raphael says that the heart and the liver, those can actually drive away demons, and then the gall can heal eyes. Hmm, the plot thickens. Wow. As they get closer to Ekbatana, Cupid, or rather, Raphael, <laughs> says, hey, Tobiah, you should marry Sarah. Tobiah, though, isn't exactly keen on that idea of marrying her since, you know, it's basically a death sentence. They've words gotten around. Well... Raphael is like, look, your dad said you got to marry in the family, keep it in the family, right? And the reason those guys died, her seven husbands died, is because of a demon. Just smoke the demon out, pray to God, boom, you're married. After all, says Raphael, quote, she was set apart for you before the world was made. Hmm. Hmm. What do wow. we do with that? That's interesting. Soulmates. Yeah. So that's that's chapters four through six of the narrative. Wow, a lot happens there in chapters four through six. A lot of exciting stuff. Now, <laughs> I do have a couple questions here. So in chapter four, uh, what does it mean that um, when it says he put the bread on the grave of the righteous? This is in chapter four, verse. 17 so um what did you have any ideas on that nick it's kind of a weird verse that stood out to me and i was like what is this yeah it is um <clears throat> so it's part uh, of this advice that uh, tobi tobit is giving to tobias right so i have my my new american bible here and it says be lavish with your bread and wine at the burial of the virtuous but do not share them with sinners what i read there is um Host a potluck following a funeral. Uh, that seems like a good thing. People who are enduring bereavement, who are hurting because of the loss of a loved one, sometimes eating patterns get disrupted because of that. But um, it's very practical advice. Hey, host a host a, a banquet, host a potluck uh, for these folks. One of the practices, by the way, that we have here at Davis Park is uh, typically um, we have a funeral immediately followed by a meal. We host like a ham dinner for the family, and they eat to their fill, and there's usually leftovers. They take those home with them because I think the idea is you got to take care of those who are hurting, who are bereaving um, during their time. Um, yeah, so. Interesting. <clears throat> you know, I, I wonder if there was some sort of, you know how we go to a grave site and we place flowers down just as like a little memento out of respect? Uh, you know, this is my this is my dead wife's grave. I placed her favorite flowers here. You know, on the anniversary of her death, we do th little things like that, right? Right. Uh, maybe that's part of their custom and culture. Maybe that's what he's talking about because there is this respect for the dead that sort of has a theme throughout the Book of Tobit. Tobit being considered righteous, and one of his righteous deeds being giving the dead a proper burial among Israel, not letting the dead Israelite bodies just sit outside the city. 
Yeah, there, there's uh, if you look at a Septuagint translation, it mentions pour out your bread upon the grave of the righteous. That I think speaks to what you're talking about there. Yes. There's a second possibility, too. I'm not sure if this one's right, but um, when you compare some of the wisdom uh, statements found in this letter to other Second Temple wisdom literature, like uh, the wisdom of Sirach, um, giving and charity and almsgiving is um, something that you restrict to the righteous poor, those who are wholeheartedly mindful of God, as it says in chapter 2, verse 2, and 4, verse 6. So very interesting, it says there's a priority that if you're going to give to the poor, you give to the righteous poor, those who are keeping their mind on God. Very interesting. I don't know if that would go over too well in our churches today, if we said (laughs) just give to the (laughs) righteous poor, but I do think there is a priority to the poor among ourselves, among the church, that is to be taken care of first before we uh, give to those who care not for God. Well, uh, shall we press forward here into chapters uh, 7 through 9? Alex, you want to summarize those for us? Yeah, that sounds good. So we get into chapter 7, and Tobias and Azariah, who is actually the archangel Raphael, but nobody knows that yet except for the reader, right? They make it to Ecbatana, which is in Media, and they come to the house of Raguel and his wife Edna. Now, these are relatives of Tobit's. So they're shown great hospitality. Raguel is rejoiced to meet Tobias, but he's saddened to hear of Tobit's misfortune. He cries about it. His wife cries about it. Their daughter cries about it. They just don't believe something that terrible should happen to a righteous man. So later, as the night progresses... They start to discuss the marriage of Sarah, and this history of her past seven dead husbands comes up in the conversation. And it's funny, Raguel makes it sound like, you know, okay, Tobias, you have the right to marry her. In fact, you're the one who has the most right to marry her, according to Mosaic law. Uh, However, she's uh, zero for seven right now, (laughs) so uh, eat, drink, and be merry. He literally says that. (laughs) Enjoy your, your supper tonight. And so they make, and Tobias says, no, I'm not. I want to make a contract to marry her right now. I'm committing immediately. Then we can have supper. So they do that. There's a bridal room that's prepared for the night for uh, Tobias and Sarah and Raguel and Edna say a few prayers. Edna especially prays with Sarah, cries for her, says, may the Lord bless you. So that's chapter seven. Chapter eight, uh, Tobias enters the bridal chamber. And he puts the liver and the heart of the fish that uh, tried to eat his leg earlier in the river. Um, <laughs> he puts that, <laughs> that liver and heart on the embers of the incense that were in the room. So the embers start to smoke the heart and the liver of the fish. And when that smoke starts to fill the room, the demon Asmodeus, he runs away. He can't take it. It, it uh, is, is terrible to him. So he flees, and it says he flees all the way to Egypt. That's crazy. And then it says Raphael chases him down, finds Asmodeus in Egypt, binds him hand and foot, and uh, and takes care of Asmodeus. Now, that that is very interesting because uh, these guys must be flying somehow. Yeah. I mean, these, these guys are moving at a tremendous speed. If they're going to be way up north in Assyria and Media, 
and Raphael's going to chase him down all the way to Egypt and then get back in time for the rest of the story. So there's definitely some supernatural, very like exciting, like imaginative stuff going on. So Tobias and Sarah, uh, they say a prayer of Thanksgiving. They sleep together. And meanwhile, Raguel, he's pretty sure Tobias is dead. So <laughs> he's he's uh, getting ahead of the game. He's burying the grave. He's digging the grave, and he's like, ah, it's going to be shameful if uh, people know that another one died. So let's just bury it tonight. Get it, you know, done with before anybody sees. So he finds out that Tobias is fine. Both of them are fine. He's rejoiceful. He fills in the grave hole. Uh, guess he doesn't mention that part to Tobias later. <laughs> yeah. And so after he finds out Tobias as well, um, he has this prayer. And then the new in-laws, they make Tobias stay for two weeks. They make him promise with an oath. And then they give him half of their possessions. So he gets this large inheritance. But uh, Tobias, uh, this is chapter 8 now, Tobias is concerned because he knows that uh, mom and dad are probably going nuts right about now. And so he's, he's worried about time and getting back to his parents so that they don't freak out. So he sends Azariah, a.k.a. this is Raphael. <clears throat> he sends him to go get the silver from Gabael in Rages Media. media. So um, apparently he's back from Egypt already, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he went down to Egypt, bound the demon, and came back all in a good hard night's work. So Gabael... Uh, is in Rages. Raphael goes to meet Gabriel. He gets the silver. Gabriel and him return with, you know, to Tobias at Raguel's house, and they celebrate Tobias's wedding. So that's chapters um, seven through nine. Yeah. So um, some of the things that stood out. One was um, Egypt to the upper parts of Egypt, uh, which would be, I think that's the desert part of Egypt, which is fascinating when you think about um, the notion that demons, they kind of live out in these desert places, right. right? So you already have that motif, that idea being developed um, in this intertestamental literature. Yeah. Um, what well, has Old Testament backing, too. I mean, where did they send um, the uh, goat assigned for Azazel? on the Day of Atonement. Yeah, out into the wilderness. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, and then it goes to Egypt, which, I mean, there's that whole Old Testament um, concept of Egypt and what it meant for the Israelites, right? Right. Um, so, and then, it, I mean, the the behavior of uh, Raguel, I mean, that just, <laughs> that's just funny. It's, Dig a hole. It's comical. Oh, hey, he lived. Better fill it back in. So <laughs> that's right. This is a very entertaining, uh, entertaining letter. For sure, for sure. So let's uh, let's continue the entertainment. Uh, how about chapters ten through twelve? Okay, so here's what happens next. All that's going on over in uh, Ekbatana. Meanwhile, Tobit and Anna, just like Tobias was concerned about, they are having panic attacks about Tobias, <laughs> <laughs> and they're bickering with one another and. And Anna, his mom, I mean, she's just um, in shambles, right? She's convinced that Tobias has died for sure. And even Tobit is like, ah, I'm worried that the mission failed. 
And Hannah's like, the mission? He's dead. <laughs> and Tobit's like, what? Listen, listen, calm down. He's probably not dead. And she's like, he is dead. <laughs> and there's no consoling her. There's no talking to her at all. And so she just waits out by the road, waiting, looking out into the distance, weeping over her dead son. Of course, this is all in her imagination. So Tobias finishes his two-week promise to stay with Raguel, and then he kind of Raguel tries to twist his arm to stay longer, but Tobias won't do it. And so he and his new wife Sarah and their new, you know, their new fortune, half the possessions of his in-laws, given to him. And Azariah, they all travel back down to Nineveh. And uh, upon leaving, pretty interesting statement, Tobias's new mother-in-law. So get this, right? You get you're done with the, you know, you're you're finishing the honeymoon, or it's you know it's the day after your your wedding, and your new mother-in-law says, "Never, ever grieve my daughter all the days of her life." <laughs> <laughs> oh, and God bless you. And then they all leave. <laughs> That's right. It's like oh, no pressure, right? So that's chapter ten. Chapter eleven. Tobias and Azariah, they're getting closer with Sarah to Nineveh, but they decide to run ahead of Sarah. They say, you know, we're close enough to the city. Sarah can meet up with us later. But Azariah says, Tobias, you need to go and run ahead because remember what I told you about the uh, the fish gull and how it can fix Tobit's eyes? Go do that. So Tobias runs ahead. Tobias runs ahead. He uh, blows on Tobit's eyes. And then he smears the gall of the fish in his eyes. And it says he smears it so hard and so thorough that it stings. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, um, this film starts to peel away from Tobit's eyes. And so Tobit starts to wipe the peel off of his eyes. And then all of a sudden, he can see again. His sight is completely restored. And so Tobit is going nuts. He's screaming all through, up and down the streets of Nineveh, praising God. And everybody's like, is that, is that Tobit? Like, can he see again? And so every the word starts spreading, right? This is a big deal. And then Tobias, he's, he's trying to explain to his dad the success of their journey and all that God has done for him. And so on that day, it says all the Jews rejoiced in Nineveh, those who had heard of Tobit's restoration. And then Sarah comes. Tobit gets to see his new daughter-in-law. Another wedding feast takes place. And that's chapter 11. So chapter 12... You have some, you know, a few days that pass, and Tobit and Tobias are talking, and they're deciding, okay, we have to pay Azariah his wages, but we also want to give him a bonus because he was so helpful. In fact, they said he was so helpful that really Azariah deserves half of all their fortune that they brought back. So we're talking about all the possessions we got from Raguel and Edna, uh, all the silver that we got from Gabael over in Raguez, um, all the fortune that we brought back, half of that needs to go to Azariah because of all his help. So they call Azariah in, and Azariah's like, no, 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 come here, let me tell you something, let me tell you something. So he takes him in private, right? And he starts saying, listen, guys, praise God, you know, give thanks to him, keep doing these righteous deeds. And Azariah, which I'm now going to call Raphael, he has the coolest line in the whole book. And here's what he says. Raphael says, it is good to conceal the mystery of a king, but it is glorious to reveal the works of God. <laughs> <laughs> and so Azariah gives him some wisdom, some advice for righteous living, and then he repeats that line. So he says it twice, 
And after he says it the second time, he says it's, that it's glorious to reveal the works of God. Then he says, I am Raphael, one of the seven archangels. <laughs> and I heard all of your prayers, and I've recorded all of your deeds, and I've tested you, and you've been found righteous, and I was sent by God to help you. And they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and they flip out, and they start you know, bowing down and giving thanks and all of this. And that's the last you see of, of uh, Raphael. And that, that is pretty epic. I mean, that's, if this is, if this really is floating around before Jesus's time, before the book of Hebrews is written, there's more going on then in people's minds when they hear that verse that says, uh, you know, be sure to show hospitality to strangers for some have even entertained angels without knowing it. That's right. I mean, that fits this story quite well. There's all kinds of <clears throat> connections that you can draw from this. I think of um, the the prodigal son, the father waiting at the gates for him to come back. Whereas here you have Tobi, Tobias, Tobiah, the traveling son, who is a sharp contrast between the prodigal, right? right? He's the dutiful and obedient son, but there's the mother standing there waiting for him to come back. Um, the smearing stuff on the eyes to heal the blindness, and then Jesus comes on the scene and mud that he makes and then puts it on people's eyes, go wash, and they can see. Um, there's also a bunch of elements of um, uncleanness that abound throughout this narrative uh, thus far. Um, you have all the talk about the dead, which are unclean. Right. Living in Nineveh, the land of uncleanness. Right. Demons, which... That's right. Um uh, demons, which are unclean spirits. Right. Uh, the dog that showed up earlier, um, that's an unclean animal. Right. And yet it was kind of, it, it appears to me it's a family dog, you know. It's, it's, I always saw, yeah. when I read it, I imagined it was Azariah's dog, like his, uh, uh, I don't know, his, his. Like how Superman had, uh, what was the dog's name, Crypto or something? Yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> <laughs> but just all those elements of uncleanness that just abound throughout this story, it's in supposed to communicate exile right we're right we're living in exile and all this uncleanness around us so but even in the midst of uncleanness you can have your fortunes reversed you can be righteous and in the sight of god your prayers can be powerfully heard in the presence of god very important lessons to be learned uh, while in exile definitely all kinds of things in there about uh you know things that maybe we as christians uh, just reading our new testaments don't catch on to or don't have in our mind all the time like you know the role of angels and their helping of us um, there's some role that angels play even in our prayer life uh, the, all this thing about visions and it says the meaning you know the angel he says when you saw me eating and drinking um, that was just a vision so that's weird right yeah. <laughs> so something yeah. going on there all kinds of strange stuff but uh, we still well, got two more chapters though wrap that's it up not for the us the Alex book. Yeah, chapters 13 and 14. All right, well, chapter 13, Tobit then, you know, after the revealing of Raphael, Tobit gives this long prayer, and that's the whole chapter for chapter 13, is this long prayer and praise to God from Tobit. He expresses the righteousness and justice of God in both of God's blessings and God's judgments. He relates his own experience of reversal to the captivity that Israel uh, has found herself in and the, the hope for restoration. There are even some messianic and eschatological notes concerning the bringing in of all the nations to God's kingdom. Yep. Yep. And he concludes with a picture of Jerusalem one day being built with precious stones and gold. 
which is very reminiscent mm. of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. So that's chapter 13. Chapter 14 is the final chapter that really summarizes the death of um, Tobit and also ends with the death of Tobias. So Tobit dies of a ripe old age of, I think, 112 is what my text said. So Tobit tells Tobias, his son, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, that they need to take their family and they need to, they need to leave Nineveh because of the prophesied destruction. So Tobit then has a deathbed prophecy about the future destruction and restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. Uh, Tobit reemphasizes the importance of almsgiving uh, and of honoring your parents. And then he uses the almsgiving of Ahikar to show, there's a man named Ahikar, to show that God protects those who are righteous. Ahikar is righteous because of all his alm- almsgiving. And so when Ahikar has this nephew, Nadab, who tries to betray him, um, Ahikar is protected and Nadab is killed. So Tobias, he buries his father, Tobit, and then later his mother dies and he buries her next to him. And then they move. They get out of Nineveh and they move to Ekbatana, where Raguel and Edna, that's Sarah's parents, where they live. And so they take care of Sarah's parents until they die. And then they inherit the rest of Sarah's parents' uh, possessions. And that's where Tobias stays until he dies. And before Tobias dies, at the ripe old age of 117, he hears of Nineveh's destruction. It is destroyed. He actually gets to see some of their captives being led away. And as a result, he praises God. And then the book ends. Hmm. And so it's, it's the praising of God's righteous judgment upon wickedness and evil that uh, makes him happy, and that's the end of the story. So, <laughs> I think um, there are definitely some questions there that we have for those last few chapters, especially. But um, this brings us to our tough text, tough text of the day. The tough text, Nick, is what exactly is being referenced there between. Nadab and Ahikar in chapter 14, because it's thrown out there as if the audience would already know what that is. I know it. I know it. And uh, being the good Bible students that we are, some might want to connect Nadab with another Nadab in the Old Testament, but um, uh, don't think that's what's going on there. (laughs) In the Septuagint, the names are, it depends on which one you read. I have an older one that says Amon and Achiacharus. Achiacharus, uh, yep. And then um, if you read the Lexham English Septuagint you referenced earlier, it's Adam, Ahikar, Achiacharus, and Manasseh are all named there and just kind of cobbled together. Um, what's interesting is that some have interpreted interpreted that as Haman and Mordecai. The problem, of course, with that is Tobit is living three centuries before the events in Esther ever take place. So right, right, right. I don't think that's going to work. No. Ahikar's been mentioned earlier in chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He's actually Tobit's nephew there. There is, I found, an Old Testament pseudepigraphon known as the story of Ahikar, wherein Ahikar adopts his nephew, uh, whose name is Nadab, and raises him as a son, trains him to take his place as the seal bearer for the king, the, the Assyrian king, Esarhaddon. But once he's trained and installed, Nadab turns on his uncle and um, 
he tries to have him put to death. And there's deception and there's intrigue. And then the narrative is cut off. And um, it ends with Ahikar is essentially exiled. There's later versions, and it seems like Tobit knows about this one, mm-hmm. where the fortunes of Ahikar are turned. And um, he was exiled, he was hidden, but then he's brought out of hiding, reinstalled. He punishes his nephew to death. And so, hey, remember that, Tobiah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but, now, uh, <clears throat> Ahikar was the guy who helped to take care of Tobit in the first couple years of him being blind. That's right. That's right. And um, it's interesting, if that's what's being referenced here, is that Old Testament uh, pseudepigraphone um, story of Ahikar, then you have an apocryphal book referencing pseudepigrapha. And I just found that it's interesting. That's right. That's right. Um, Let's see. Let's, Let's... just do quickly um, a few of the themes. Nick, what are some of the themes you saw running throughout Tobit? We mentioned some as we were, we were going through, but um, in it, what themes stand out most to you in the book of Tobit? Well, the one that stood out to me, there's three that stood out to me. There's almsgiving. Right. I know that you caught on to that too. Um, there's also a lot of discussion about the afterlife. I underline there are several references to uh, phrases like everlasting darkness um, let me see here. Um, the dead who no longer see the light. Um, oh, where are they? I have them. Okay, the everlasting abode, the netherworld. That's how it's translated in mm-hmm. the New American Bible. You have all these references to what they believed about the afterlife that are developed here. Um, that I think you can carry across to the New Testament, although by the time you get to the New Testament with Jesus and the apostles, they begin to really flesh out what the afterlife is. Um, So there's that. The third one is angelology. Um, So you have a lot of discussion about angels. Raphael, demons, demonology as well gets tossed in here. because this is, I, I view this as historical fiction. I believe that this is very speculative. Um, that's where I land with it. But it is interesting to read what they thought about angelic activity and and what was going on with all that. But um, those were three that stood out to me. What about you, Alex? Yeah, definitely. You mentioned almsgiving is probably the dominant theme there. Um, proper burial and respect of the dead right. seemed to be a big deal. For righteous living, um, also marrying within your tribe, within your within your own faith community. Got to keep and, it in the family. Yeah, and that's even in the New Testament. Not being uh, unequally yoked is this idea we even talk about as Christians today. Like we encourage Christians to marry Christians. Um, also, this theme of reversal. This is a, a meta narrative theme. I think throughout all of the Bible, mm-hmm. this idea where God take something that's been corrupted and he reverses it and makes it good again. And I like that. That's important for our faith. Also, the prayer of the righteous. Um, The dark, dark place that Tobit and Sarah find themselves in, um, that dark place does not mean they're not righteous. Uh, Those suicidal thoughts don't mean that they are lacking in faith. 
Uh, in fact, their prayer is seen as powerful and effective, and James in the New Testament, I think, carries this idea through the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I think that is the picture we have there. And then also this uh, honoring of mother and father. And so you can see how important family would have been, especially in the midst of exile, and how when Tobias marries Sarah, his parents immediately say, uh, we are also now your mother and father, and you are now our true son. Uh, yeah. And the uh, same thing happens when Sarah meets Tobit and Anna. They say the same thing. We are now your mother and father, and, and you are now our true daughter. And they take care of these parents until they die, make sure that they get proper burial, respectful burial. Those are definitely some themes that run through a handful of other ones we could go through. Nick, I want to talk about, though, a little bit about canonicity, because at the beginning of the podcast you mentioned, um, you know, why isn't this book in our Bible? So let's start right. with just the historicity of Tobit. Is the book of Tobit even historical? What do you think, Nick? The majority of critics say no. Um, Bruce Metzger, in his book, says... On page 37, though the story is entirely unhistorical, it is nevertheless a valuable historical source for our knowledge of Jewish piety and family life in the second century before Christ. So he views it as <clears throat> uh, unhistorical. Most view it as something akin to like an ancient romance story. I'm inclined, as I said, to see it as historical fiction. It was intended to provide moral and religious instruction. And the thing about stories, Jesus shows us this in his parables, which were, uh, for the most part, fictitious stories that he made up. A story does not need to be historical in order to teach. So <clears throat> um, there are several historical inaccuracies in the book itself. Uh for example, 1 verse 2 says that uh, Shalmaneser took the captives uh, away, but 2 Kings 15 verse 29 says it was Tiglath-Pileser who did that. Uh, also, uh, 1 verse 15, Sennacherib was not the son of Shalmaneser. It was, he was the son of Sargon. So uh, those kinds of things indicate this is a fictitious story, uh, historical fiction, but nevertheless it, it is a story which teaches. That's where I land with Tobit. All right. I probably am somewhere a little bit more towards the... There is some... Well, let's put it this way. I think it could be mostly historically true, but I think there are some mistakes in there. You mentioned the mistakes with um, Shalmaneser, uh, confusing it with Tiglath-Pileser, uh, Sennacherib, uh, those names. So I think there is some inaccuracy there. However, um, I'm kind of wondering if Tobit was a real historical guy. Uh, I think he was. I think Tobias and Sarah were real historical uh, people. The reason I think this is because um, in parables, you usually don't have quite as much detail or names given. Uh, none of Jesus' parables give names, unless you count the rich man and Lazarus. But, um, I think that that is a more of a real historical story as well. So I guess for me, I walk away with it saying there are some mistakes in here. There are some inaccuracies in here. 
However, I uh, think that the, the majority of it is actually historically true with historically real people. So that's where I land. There we go. Well, Fine by me. <laughs> that's, I mean, how are you yeah. going to know either way? I mean, we're, we're, we're all guessing here. But more importantly, perhaps, is why is Tobit not in our Bible? So you mentioned all the the texts earlier, uh, the manuscripts that we have for this, and we could toss in here some others. Um, I'm not going to rehearse that, but um, what I do want to say about all those different manuscripts that we have is a lot of people throughout history, uh, not just Christian history, probably, uh, well, definitely pre-Christian history, they have had this book as, if not literature, it was perhaps even, it was in their Bibles. It was. And they've read it, and they've loved it. Uh, In fact, our uh, Catholic friends and our Eastern Orthodox friends, they have this book in their Bibles. But Protestant Bibles don't contain it, and the quick answer for me is the reason it's not there is because it's not inspired like the other 66 books of the Bible. Uh, I think the historical inaccuracies definitely work against it. Um, You don't find that historical inaccuracy in the Bible, the 66 books that we have, whereas you do find it here in Tobit. It's good. Uh, I think this is good, beneficial literature to read, but it is not the Word of God like the Bible is, and that's why it's not in our Bibles. What say you? Well, I put a little caveat on that. Um, I think we're really missing out here by not having Tobit. Um among our biblical books. I think the teaching of what is canon and not canon is actually a big can of worms. I don't think it's quite as clear-cut as perhaps um, most people would think. Uh, very very dicey and um, vague as to how all this came about, and a lot of it depends on what our definition of inspiration even is. A lot of different definitions of inspiration, but all that to say that uh, where I'm at right now, I don't think a biblical document, whether inspired or uninspired, I don't think it has to be free from uh, historical inaccuracies in order to be um, like true. And so what I mean by that is we don't have the original manuscripts for anything, to be honest with you. Those are called autographs. We don't have any autographs for Old Testament books or New Testament books. Uh, all of the books we have are copies, and when copies are made, there are mistakes that can happen. Now, the more copies we have, the more we can compare those mistakes to each other to see if we can confidently say what the mistake is and what it probably originally was before the mistake occurred. Uh, we do that all the time, and that's good scholarship. So I guess I would say that um, the more I learn about these writings called the Apocrypha or Deuterocanonical books, the more I actually enjoy the content. I think they have explanatory power. I think they fill in some gaps for questions that we might have had we not read them. And right now, I'm in an exploration stage where I'm open to the idea that these are not just uh, beneficial, but they might even be authoritative And that question is not new to me in the 21st century, but it goes back quite a long ways. 
um, to a debate that is 2,000 years old. So I'm on a journey right now, and uh, I really like this book, and so I, I think there might be something to it. I mean, were really all the Christians for the first 1,600 years of Christianity completely wrong? I mean, that's a hard pill to swallow on, on some, maybe they were on some things, but on everything, that's a hard pill to swallow. That's where I'm at. Well, Nick, let's talk about the New Testament now. Yep. So New Testament impact. Are there Messianic stuff, New Testament relevant stuff um, in Tobit, especially in chapter 14? What do you think? Uh, yeah, so um, 14 verse 6 talks about how all the nations of the world shall be converted and shall offer God true worship. All shall abandon their idols, which have deceitfully led them into error. Um, that, it sounds, right, it, it sounds kind of uh, messianic in, uh, in, in uh, it's definitely prophecy, he's predicting something, but it, it it has that ring to it, and I think there may be some messianic connections that can be made throughout the book. I mean, the father and the son relationship between Tobit and Tobiah is strikingly similar to that of the father and the son, and I'm talking about the father and Jesus. The son is obedient to the will of the father. The son Tobiah was obedient to the will of his father, Tobit. Um, and then I also made the connection... Um, Tobit 5 verse 1 where Tobiah says everything you have commanded me father I will do and that sounds eerily similar to what Jesus says in his high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 4 I have glorified you on earth by accomplishing the work that you gave me to do uh, and and so yeah I think I think there there could be some Foreshadowing, Messi huh? Yeah, yeah, foreshadowing, messianic overtones, however you want to say that, that uh, there's there's definitely connective tissue there. I think there's a lot. You mentioned the Hebrews passage earlier. There are guys who've made collections of um, texts in the New Testament that seem to allude to um, not just Tobit, but uh, the apocryphal books in general. Um there was one oh the one that stands out that stands out big time is in the synoptic gospels Matthew 22:25 Mark 12 verse 20 Luke 20:29 20, about the the question that the religious teachers have about the what about the woman that had seven husbands and they all died without giving her children whose husband uh, or whose wife will she be at the resurrection right, right. the Sadducees asked right. of all people I mean if I mean if, if that's not an allusion to Tobit, I mean that's that's. Then a, I don't know what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very compelling thing that apparently these guys knew the book, had read the book, knew about Sarah, and that could be the case study that they're referencing there. Yeah, I mean, manuscript evidence I think backs that up, Nick. The manuscripts abound before and during the time of Jesus, and so this story was was in their heads. It was in their conversations. It's hard to imagine them not saying, like, oh, seven husbands. Hey, did you get that from Toby? Oh, no, I just made that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're taking that as a real thing. Completely original. That yeah. somebody ha – that this could happen. And if it did happen, Jesus, 
who would be the husband in the afterlife. Yeah, so that's uh, that. That was a big connection that I made um, for sure. Uh, there was one. Oh yeah. Um, so a greater than Tobit has come. Right. That's the other thing that I walked away with. You have Tobit. He goes around burying the dead. Yep. Jesus comes, and he's going around raising the dead when that's he right. comes. So that's right. a greater than Tobit. And and uh, the story of Tobit. You have this healing of the eyes. Right. Right, but when you get to the New Testament, there's a guy who was born blind, and the people of Israel say, "Who has ever heard of somebody being born blind and then being hmm. healed?" Yeah, we've heard of a guy who had some birds defecate on his <laughs> face. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we've heard of somebody being healed of their damaged eyes right later in life, but nobody that's been born blind. And so you have this even greater healer. Then yeah. Raphael. Interestingly enough, Nick, I don't know if you knew this, but Raphael in Hebrew means God is healer. That's good stuff. El is healer. Mm. Well, there are a few uh, special notes and parallels that you mentioned there in the um, New Testament. Um, a few that I found were as not just the New Testament, but in some of the pseudepigrapha. So there's right. this demon called Asmodeus in the book of Tobit, and he appears again in the pseudepigrapha book uh, called the Testament of Solomon, the Testament of Solomon. This is in the Testament of Solomon, chapter 5. Um, there, Solomon is uh, bringing these demons before him to interview them, interrogate them, and then put them to work. Um it's a crazy book. You could go read it to get the details. But Solomon has this power over demonic spirits because of this uh, special sealing, binding, like, signet ring that has been given to him by the archangel Michael. And uh, there's a demon there that's brought before him named Asmodeus, and the demon admits to being the son of a human woman and an angelic father. Now, he's, so he's half angel, half human. And this is consistent with Second Temple literature and the interpretation of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, where it says, The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, took them for their wives. They had children. They were giants of old, the Nephilim. So, Second Temple literature develops this idea further that when those giants were wiped out in the flood and then killed later post-flood um, at the conquest of Joshua and finally by David when David puts down Goliath and uh, his mighty men put down Goliath's brothers and the rest of the Philistine giants over in Gaza, what happens to their spirits? Well, they believed that their spirits still roamed the earth, that they had the ability to travel between realms of the living and dead, and this is what they call unclean spirits or demons. And so there are two major ways which the word demon is used in the New Testament and in Second Temple literature. One is these unclean spirits, the disembodied giants, the disembodied Nephilim, who are half angel, half human. The second is the word demon also is used to describe uh, fallen angels, the ones who came down and uh, rebelled against God, the ones who slept with women and created these uh, hybrid beings. So demon can be used in one of two different ways, both in Second Temple literature and in the New Testament. So Asmodeus is one of these half-angel demons, and uh, it says in the Testament of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 10, that 
there is something that thwarts Asmodeus, and he's forced to tell Solomon what it is. And he says that it's the um, the smoke created by the uh, heart and liver of of this certain fish. And the kind of fish that gets translated into English is a, a catfish, a catfish. Mm. So fried catfish. That's right. So Tobias drives is, away demons. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so Tobias is down by the river, and he's washing his feet. Have you ever seen noodling, Nick? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. People can Google noodling, right? Where people go down in the river, they stick their hands in these muddy holes by the riverbanks, and they use their arm as bait for a giant catfish to grab a hold of. (laughs) And then they pull these giant, huge catfish out of their holes, and they catch catfish just like that. It's called noodling. And so in the story, it makes it sound like Tobias is trying to wash his feet, and he accidentally is noodling with his foot. (laughs) This catfish grabs onto his foot, to his leg, and he's able to whip it out of the water and catch it and then eat it and keep its liver and heart and gall uh, at the advice of of Raphael Azariah. That's that's pretty interesting. Anyway, just some parallels and and special notes there. Um, Also, these themes of prayer, giving, and fasting, prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. These are key signs of righteous people in the book of Tobit. And guess what? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus shows up, and what are the things he talks about for righteous people to practice? Prayer, yeah. giving, and fasting, and how to do it in a righteous way as opposed to the unrighteous way that the Pharisees practice them. So those are some touch points that I found. Uh, Nick, is there anything else that you found? Uh you know, there's so many other things that we didn't even get to touch on just because I don't think we had the time to really dig into them. I mean, the, chapter 6 about the the soulmates, essentially, right? I mean, the, right. she was prepared for you before time began. A lot more could be said about the angels and the visions and things like that. But um, And by the way, the soulmates wanted... thing could go into a whole other study on the preexistence of yeah. the soul and the yeah. development yeah. of that in the Western world. And there is a whole... Traducian theory to that, yeah, um, yeah. But for another time, I suppose. That's the, right. Uh, as I said, and Alex, you really emphasize this. It, this is good and beneficial literature. It is. Um, it it is a text that I th- I would commend to Christians to read, even though it may not be in our Bibles. Right. It is. It's good stuff. All right, good stuff. So. Definitely. I think that's going to do it for us. That's right. Unless there's anything else you wanted to add. Last exhortation is that, you know, no matter where you come down on uh, what's canon or not, inspired or not, think of it this way. If there was a story uh, floating around in the head of the first century uh, churchgoers, then perhaps we should put those same stories in our head. And if we do, we might just find that we see things in the New Testament in a new light might fill in the gaps to some answers and bring uh, that excitement that you got the first time you started studying the Bible, the first time you started seeing connections and answering things you'd never seen before. That journey continues as we continue to study and broaden our knowledge base of the um, information available that created the context in which the Bible was written. Bible is the holy inspired word of God. I believe it is true and beneficial 
for all things breathed by the mouth of God. And so let that's why we make this podcast, is for people to be in that word and to use it for the nourishment of their soul, for the edification of the church, and the spreading of the gospel. And if you are in the word and you have a question, Alex, where can they send that question to? They can send it to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. So that's swordplay, S-W-O-R-D-P-L-A-Y, P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. You can go into the iTunes store or the Google Play store, search Swordplay, and you'll find our podcast there. Leave a review. Help us get the word out about it as well. That's right. And there'll be more episodes of the Apocrypha that we'll throw in here in the future. We'll probably do some uh, episodes on the Pseudopigrapha. And we will introduce you to these exciting uh, texts that help us as we study the Word of God. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Sword Play.